Let me pray and then we will turn to Colossians 1, 9-13 and stand as we read it. But first let's pray. <clears throat> Beloved Father, thou art the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we confess as God in the flesh. We thank you for the outbreathed gift of thy Holy Scripture. This we confess and receive the epistle of Colossians to be thy holy word, thy holy Bible. Illumine our minds with thy truth. Soften our wills to conform obediently to the slightest movement of thine eye. Draw our affections to thy beauty in the breathed-out scripture and the blessed face of Jesus. Speak, O Lord, our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, for we are thy servants, thy slaves are listening, ready to do thy will. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, let's stand together. I stand with you in spirit, sincerely. Colossians 1, 9 through 13. The breathed out word of God through the Apostle Paul to a church he has never met. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge, the real knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing in all respects, bearing fruit by every good work and increasing or growing by the real knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory for the attaining of all steadfastness, endurance, and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen. God's word. You may be seated. It is a blessed joy to open again this epistle to this young, newly planted church birthed in a culture not unlike ours. The believers in Colossae face the assertion that there are many different gods, many different truths, not just one. Remarkable is the parallel with our day. Further challenging these believers was the assertion that some of Torah, the law, must be kept per food, drink, Jewish festivals, new moons, Sabbath days. 
and through the decrees of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch the ugly head of legalism was rising as it has ever since the serpent's first slanderous words in the garden against the magnificent overflow bounty of the Father's loving heart, both in Eden and the cosmos. For fundamentally, legalism is a slanderous assertion against the character of God. And this was the point of the confession and pardon of sin today. Despite his calamity, Scripture tells us Job did not sin by speaking what is not right about God. The NASV says he didn't sin by blaming God. ESV says by charging God with wrong. King James by charging God foolishly. A more literal translation, he did not sin by asserting unseemliness to how God had dealt him. So Paul begins this epistle saying, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, thankful for their faith in Christ, verse 4, Thankful for their love for all the saints, verse 4. Thankful for the hope laid up for them in the heavens, verse 5. And Paul is thankful in prayer to God the Father for the word of truth, the gospel, verse 5, which in verse 6 is constantly bearing fruit. Verse 6 is constantly spreading abroad. The joy of sitting in session and discussing various missions that we support and observing the constantly spreading abroad is a wondrous thing that we hope to start putting more in front of you. So Paul is thankful for constant bearing fruit, constant spreading abroad of the gospel, which resulted in epikenote, the verb form of epigenosis, the very real knowledge, the epicenter in the earthquake type knowledge of God, where they had really known and tasted the wondrous grace of God. To have the enormity of the grace of God the Father through the Son being applied by the Holy Spirit, to have the eternal blessedness of this wash over you glory. Glory, it should produce joy in the heart and it will when this happens and the blessedness the instrument of this gospel had been a fellow slave 
a fellow deacon, diaconos, minister of Christ Jesus named Epaphras, who informed Paul of the Colossians' love in the Spirit. This is verse 8. An utter devotion to God. And so Paul says he has not ceased praying, asking that they be filled by an epicenter-type knowledge of the Father's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, that they may walk in a manner worthy of this God, pleasing him in all respects. Time out. Pastoral reflection. How much of my behavior do I even wonder? Is this pleasing you, Father? My mood, my attitude, my words. Father, are you pleased with what you see on my face right now? Are you pleased with what I've been speaking? With what I've been thinking about you right now? Well, Paul prays that they will be pleasing to the Father in all respects, bearing fruit, good fruit by good deeds, increasing, growing by the epicenter-type knowledge of God. And we saw how this builds and mounts. I'm in chapter 2, verse 2 now builds and mounts to hearts that are collectively encouraged and knit together in love with full assurance of understanding in an epicenter-type knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. Head knowledge is important. Relationship with Christ is where it's at. It's an epicenter knowledge of God's mystery. Oh, I've got his mystery all figured out. No. Read 2 2. The mystery of God, God's mystery, is Christ Himself, the person of Christ. And so, do I love Him? Do I worship him? Do I speak glowingly to him of my utter devotion? Do I long to see his face, his smile, to, <clears throat> to hear his loving words of comfort welcoming me into eternal peace, dancing in joy, and joy resting in peace. Here, Augustine's prayer rings also true. Grant what thou commandest, and then command what thou wilt. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Dear sweet Jesus, come to the hearts that are longing for thee, that are hurting. Perhaps they don't know they're longing for thee. 
come to the heart burdened by anxiety, fear, sorrow, let us see afresh in thy holy pages thy love, thy tenderness, thy soothing words of peace, peace to us. Help us to love you, to long for you. O Master, breathe through the pages of sacred writ, filling us with love for thee that embraces both our heads and our hearts. Amen. Explanation, verse 11. Verse 11 continues the flow of thought, explaining the means or the power behind the imperatives of verse 10. Verse 11 starts with, this is how verse 10 will be achieved, basically, being strengthened with all power. And so in typical New Testament fashion, Paul tells us <laughs> that God gives what he demands. He gives what he demands. So to rail against God in any circumstance, he's given you what he has commanded to you, what he has allotted to you. And so Augustine's words again, grant what thou commandest and then command what thou wilt. <laughs> the paradoxical mystery in scripture of divine sovereignty interfacing with human responsibility. Framed in the grammar of the gospel, what I have just described is the New Testament movement from indicative to imperative. From what hath God done on behalf of sinners to what does God now require of me? Indicative to imperative. Some churches stay stuck in the imperatives and the pastoral malady that is developed from that is legalism. Those churches that do not understand the grand indicatives of the gospel, what God hath done, that's Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, will just stay stuck in earning their salvation, thinking that they are making themselves worthy to God. Other churches, though, stay stuck in the indicatives and thus nurture licentiousness. And they don't just mean sexual. But I will behave badly and it's okay because I'm one chosen by God. <laughs> oh, maybe the words haven't been spoken, but the behavior comes forward, does it not? So to camp on one or other of the gospel's grammar is to mess up behavior and understanding of 
God. A gospel-centered, reformed church embraces both the indignities and the imperatives of the gospel. So verse 11, God's provision of strength is continuously available to his people, even when they don't think so. Bender thought that. And here is Paul's prayer in the sister epistle, Ephesians 3. Turn with me, Ephesians 3, 14 to 16. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The transformative power within the child of God is the Holy Spirit of God dwelling, living within the believer. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit providing this divine enablement through the spiritual presence of our Savior. Do you taste that? Have you tasted that? This is the experience. You're struggling with what some might call a besetting sin, but you are sincerely praying, and the temptation comes that you have before just always gone right after the temptation. But this time, there's a holy hush, a holy pause. And though the temptation be there in front of you, you don't really want it, and you know it. And you wonder, how did this happen? It's the Holy Spirit putting a bubble around you, enabling you, empowering you to say no to what you have always said yes to. This is the transformative power of the Holy Spirit, one way he does it. Any cross that you are bearing. Thy sweet Savior carries the heavier end on his strong shoulders. Understand that. His gaze is upon you with love and compassion. Well, Paul says in verse 11 again, according to his glorious might. But this second phrase of verse 11 is interesting, and it is questionable if this translation gives appropriate value to this incredibly significant word, glory. The word glory, doxa, in the New Testament, kabod in the Old, 
occurs frequently in scripture and is seen as a summary attribute of God. Not an attribute like justice or goodness, but more of a summary attribute of God, one that pervades all the other attributes. Glory, a summary attribute of God. It signifies his weighty, overwhelming presence, his eternal gravitas. Now, it might be preferable to understand this phrase in Y11 then as the strength which God supplies his children is in accord with and an expression of his own intrinsic glory. That shifts the focus. It is strength, the might of the glory of God within, strengthening you in the trial that you are in. And there is thus a God-directed goal or purpose to God's strengthening that you see there in verse 11. The gaining of endurance, steadfastness, and the gaining of patience with joy. So what is endurance and what is patience? Endurance deals with circumstances. Patience deals with people. Endurance is the ability to bear up under difficult circumstances, to not be crushed. A com it is a compound word, the two parts meaning under, to remain, to remain under, to, in the military usage in its day, to orderly compose yourself underneath authority. That's what ten hook means. Stand at attention, compose yourself orderly under authority. But here it's applied particularly to circumstances. Compose yourself under your circumstances in an orderly, composed, don't know how to say it, manner. So the word under is often used to describe being under the authority of someone. And I guess in a real sense, this trajectory of the first word, hupa, under, leads us to who? God. Because my circumstances are those orchestrated by God. So to orderly compose myself under my circumstances is ultimately to compose myself underneath the sovereign providential rule of my God. Patience. Patience means long-suffering with or toward people. 
Who are you thinking of that causes you to suffer long? Patience means long suffering. Doesn't mean action does not need to be taken, but it does mean you don't just throw them under the bus. Done with you. Goodbye. Good riddance. Patience is long suffering with people toward people, waiting a sufficient time before expressing anger. How's James say it? Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to... Why did you slow to anger? Here is steadfastness or staying power. So, endurance, to go back to verses 4 through 5, endurance is what faith, love, and hope bring to seemingly impossible situations. Patience is what faith, love, and hope bring to seemingly impossible people. And there's not a person among us who is not facing some degree of a challenging situation and a challenging person or groups of persons. Paul's prayer is that the glory of God and the might of God and the power through the Spirit will enable you to grow in endurance with your context and grow in your patience with joy. Consider Ecclesiastes 7.13. Consider Ecclesiastes 7.13. I brought a book, but it's still in my satchel. I forgot it, but I won't hold it up, but I'll tell you about it. Ecclesiastes 7.13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Hmm. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Thomas Boston, Sinclair says of him, he's probably one of the most able pastors from his day to the present. Thomas Boston wrote this Puritan classic titled The Crook Bend, like the crook of a staff. The Crook in the lot, the circumstance allotted to me. He says this, a just, appropriate view of afflictions is necessary to a Christian response under them. The remedy itself 
is a wise perception of the hand of God in all that we find hard on us. A wise perception of the hand of God in everything that we find on us. Consider the work, the doing of God in the crooked, rough, disagreeable parts of your lot, your circumstance, the crosses you find in it. You see very well the cross itself, yes. You turn it over in your mind to view it from all sides. You look at it and the secondary cause of it. And so, and I quote him, and so you are in a foam and a fret. But would you be quieted and satisfied in the matter? Lift up your eyes toward heaven. See the doing of God in it, the operation of his hand. Look at that. Consider it well. I, the first cause of the crook in your circumstantial lot, and behold how it is the work of God, his doing. Boston writes, this view of the crook in our lot is very suitable to quiet the indecent risings of heart and quiet us under it. To be orderly arranged underneath the circumstance to which Job put our hand over our mouth and no longer say things about God that aren't true. This consideration, Boston says, is a proper means to silence and satisfy men, and so bring them to a dutiful submission to their maker and governor under the crook and their lot. Hmm. We've all got crooks in our circumstance, in our lot. It may be health-related. It may be relational. It may be physical. It may be fear. It may be... Who knows what it is, but we've all got it. The Father's desire is that we gain endurance, orderly arrange ourselves underneath the circumstance that he has given to us. So verse 11, rather, being strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory for all endurance and patience with joy. James chapter 1 agrees. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance. 
and let endurance have its full effect, that you may be perfect, mature, complete, lacking in nothing. God permits a crook into one of his children's life. God's intent is the production of endurance, and all the child sees is, I don't like it. I don't like what you've done. God's intent is to produce something that will bless you for all eternity in heaven. Philippians 4 likewise admonishes, Rejoice in the Lord, there's joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness your ability to think through a situation and not just react off the cuff. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is near. <laughs> Do not be anxious about anything. That's a command. So it's a sin to have anxiety. He understands, but it's not something that will be found in heaven. And he doesn't want his children. Be anxious about, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, here's how you deal with it. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I've mentioned it before, but it resurrects itself, and I think it speaks. In 1990, when our kids were three and five, and this is a pre-carry day, 1990, Tammy came down with MS. Three hospitalizations. The last one uh, paralyzed except for. And I can remember the kids were taken to our in-laws, my in-laws, and I would go see her after work and then go home turn on worship music with my Bible open, put my face in the carpet, and weep, singing. Do that for an hour, hour and a half. And the amazing thing, though I had no answers, and we feared she was dying, but she didn't, she's healthy, I had peace that didn't make a lick of sense. I was entirely without fear, anxiety, which made no sense, had no answers, because I was keeping myself before him. How can I have joy with the crook in my lot the affliction I have received. Well, we need to understand there is an eternal difference between joy and happiness. 
Happiness is a word not found in scripture. It's of more recent vintage. Happiness comes from the word happenstance, which means what's happening. So you walk up to somebody, hey, what's happening? You're basically asking, are you happy? Happy with what? With your immediate circumstances. Happiness is the here and now. Joy, joy is the Greek word chorus, which gets translated with three English words, joy, gift, grace. The word joy in the New Testament is translated gift, joy, grace. So, happiness or sadness is based on the changing circumstances of my life. Joy is based on gifts received and gifts yet promised. It's a total shift in focus. You can be joyful while weeping. You can have joy amidst pain. You can have joy looking death in the face. Oh, you're not happy. But you can have joy, which is the Father's great eternal gift. So, my cancer, my chronic disability, even ALS may not be fun, may not make me happy, and it doesn't. But I can still embrace joy because I won't have cancer in heaven. I won't have blindness in heaven. There are no Rollators in heaven. There's no ALS in heaven. There's no heart disease in heaven. And we can just go on and on. So what I choose to think about will entirely affect my endurance and patience with either gloom, despair, and agony on me. Some of you know that hee-haw song, which I won't sing. But gloom, despair, bitterness, depression, or joy. Beloved of Christ Jesus, I am praying for you. Know that the Heavenly Father chose you as a gift to his eternally begotten Son, a gift of love and relationship throughout the ages to come. Imagine that, the ages to come. Listen to some words that speak from me and out of me as I have ministered to not a few of you, some of you will recognize some of these thoughts. But this is where I keep my mind. And this is why I can keep joy. Even when I'm not happy. 
You are approaching eternal bliss, joy, and peace. You will await his glorious return as king to this rebellious plant. All those gifted to him will return on the clouds with him, where they will be reunited with their now glorified bodies. And thus, we shall be together with our beloved Savior. Oh, how sweet would the joy of heaven be, the river of life flowing from under his throne, lined with the tree of life whose leaves bring healing forever. Oh, joy, what jubilant glory gazing into this pristinely pure flowing river. Imagine the beauty of the undulating water plants all bespeaking the aesthetic beauty that is his on the throne. To just sit and gaze, mesmerized by the river's symmetry, flowing, jubilantly praising the maker. Oh, how little we see in this life of what is coming. <laughs> drink, yes, drink deeply of the cup of his love. For you are beloved by Father and Son through the glorious, beautifying Holy Spirit. May grace, mercy, and peace cover you as a heavenly blanket. These words and many others like them I penned following months reading the seraphic words of Samuel Rutherford. And it was a golden treasure finding the following statement by him in a letter dated 1632. He says, When you come to the wellhead and take of the apples of the tree of life and eat under the shadow of that tree, the apples are sweeter up beside the tree than they are down here in this piece of clay prison house. I have no joy but in the thoughts of these times, end quote. That caused a light bulb to turn on inside me and helped me understand the thing that had happened. A couple of months into my diagnosis with ALS, it dawned on me that while I wasn't happy, nor was, nor is it fun, I did have an incredible peace, utter delight, yes, joy, reading Rutherford's glowing seraphic descriptions of the glories of Emmanuel's land. And what occurred to me was that the Father was blessing me with deep peace and joy simply by reading Rutherford's scriptural words. 
I then began turning to Isaiah and found joy flowing from the glorious descriptions of the root of Jesse that have flowed from my pen ministering to me and not a few of you. It was eye-opening to me. I hadn't even really been seeking, praying for peace as such. But it dawned on me while reading, soaking my mind in this biblical words, which turned me to scripture. All of a sudden, <laughs> it's like he knocked on my head and said, hey, you got peace, don't you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> How's that? It's because of where you've been keeping your mind. Oh, there is an invaluable pastoral clue for some of you. What are you doing with your crook in your lot? How is endurance? How is patience with joy growing within? Are you distracting yourself with things of this world, which only distract for a time, but without joy? Oh, you can be happy, giggling for the moment, but there's no joy aftermath. Verse 12 takes us to Paul's uh, apex, his climaxing thought, giving thanks to the Father. Verse 5, for the hope laid up for us in heaven. Verse 6, for the incredible beauty of the grace of God in the gospel. Verse 11, for the inner might of his glory, building endurance and patience within us with joy. And then Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has, King James, made us meet, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. God is the one who has qualified us. It is not we, Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were by nature children of wrath. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace, by a gift You've been saved and raised up with Christ and seated us with Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and this is not your own doing. Horatius Bolnar, 1800s, framed a small track with what shall I approach God? First sentence, it is my sins with which I approach God. I have nothing else. So by grace have you been saved through faith. And this not your doing. Faith is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, understand from this scripture and words I'll quote from Owen, John Owen, God the Father is the fountainhead of every good thing. Owen wrote, It is a duty wherein it is most evident that Christians are but little exercised, namely, holding immediate communion with the Father in love. Unacquaintedness with our mercies, our privileges, is our sin, as well as our trouble. <laughs> How few of the saints are experimentally acquainted. Do you see Owen's wording there? That's the epignosis concept. Really knowing how few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. With what anxious, doubting thoughts do they look upon him? What fears, what questions are there about his goodwill and kindness? At best, many think there is no sweetness at all in him but what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Christ. Mm. Nay, <clears throat> John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave. <clears throat> Owen says it is true. Christ alone is the way of communication, but the free fountain and spring of all is in the bosom of the Father. Today's confession and pardon time the scripture in Job says, Job never sinned by saying things about God which he ought not, things that weren't right. And then closes with the words, and the Lord accepted Job. This is the publican. This is the publican focused on his sin who went home justified. Job did not say things about God not right. Remember our Lord and Savior has said, I do not say I will request the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Believer, child of God, the Father himself loves you. 
because you have loved me. Revelation 22 is a fitting end to this reading of a share and inheritance of the saints in light. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the, the word there is ethnos, ethnic of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have qualified us, made us meet to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is by your doing, despite who we are, despite what we are, despite what we've done. For we praise you and bless you for the magnificent outpour of love shown in the sending of your Son, the giving of your Son to effect, achieve the purchase of we who have been chosen and gifted by thee to him. O oh Lord, minister tenderly to the struggling heart. Touch the one struggling with disease, with fear, uncertainty. Touch the one struggling with an improper view of you, who has said things of you that ought not have been said. But Lord, who of us has not sinned? And you love us and you wash us in the gracious blood of Jesus. Receive your children to yourself. We bless your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.